I've often found it useful to remind the people of God that there is water, and then there are the waters. There's water, and then there are the waters. Now, I'm going to explain what I mean. In the book that I wrote, uh, reflecting on my journey with cancer some years ago, I spent a whole chapter on this, so this is going to be very stripped down. We all know what water is, I hope. We all know what water is. We have to consume it to live. We bathe in it. We swim in it. Nowadays, it seems everybody wants to live near it or at least spend time near it when the sun's out. And its usefulness in the world is almost beyond numbering, whether you're talking about chemistry or modern technology or anything else. We know what water is. That's water. The ancients knew what water was, too. But then there are the waters. And that's different. If you're watching a movie and a character appears eating an apple, what is that meant to convey to you? Smugness, arrogance. If somebody's eating an apple, it's not a good look on screen, right? You're supposed to, this is supposed to tell us something about the person. But there's nothing wrong with apples. It's the same with water. Water has a regular meaning, and then it has a metaphorical meaning. The first time we see its metaphorical meaning in the Bible the waters, is in the book of Genesis. At the very beginning, in the creation of all things. Genesis chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, says this, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was a formless and desolate emptiness, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. He called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening, and there was morning. The Hebrew literally does say, just one day. Then God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate waters from waters. God made the expanse and separated the waters that were below the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. God called the expanse heaven, your translation might say sky, and there was evening and there was morning, a second day. Now the Hebrew word translated the waters in these verses, this is your your new Hebrew word, is the word ma'im. You want to try that with me? Ma'im. The top there is Hebrew. That's what Hebrew looks like. Uh, so it looks strange, but it's, it's not. If you ever want to learn Hebrew, it's my favorite thing to teach. Ma'im, waters. The word is always plural in Hebrew. It never occurs in the singular. There's no Hebrew word for water. It's always waters. The scriptures tell us that in the beginning, the waters, the ma'im, covered everything. But God spoke into the Ma'im. The first thing he did was create light and separated it from darkness. And then he separated the waters themselves. And in the midst of the waters, God placed a protective dome, the scriptures tell us. The habitable space created by that dome, my translation called it heaven. You've probably seen it as sky. It's literally in Hebrew, the word, I don't have a slide for this. Shemaim, heavens. Shemaim. Does it sound similar to Maim? It should. 
because the word heaven literally means between the waters. Shimaim. Maim is waters. Shimaim, between the waters. The picture given to us is of a great and vast ocean with an air pocket created by God in the midst of the waters. And then on day three, he causes land to rise into that pocket. And that's what we have as the heavens and the earth. This is the habitable space created by God for the Hebrew prophets, surrounded by waters. So the next question is, well, then what are the waters? Like, what does he mean by that? Does he mean literal water? Is this like chemically H2O? Is there a literal wall somewhere in the heavens holding back an infinite ocean of water? I mean, possibly. I mean, who can say what's on the other side of the universe apart from God? I don't know. But probably not what is being meant here. Why do I say that? Because the waters, the mayim in the Bible, are used frequently as a metaphor for chaos, for lifelessness, for the things in the universe that war against the creation of God. And that's clearly what the waters are referring to in Genesis 1. The waters, the mayim, represent what is natural. What's the natural, original state of the universe according to Genesis? Nothing. Nothing. That's what it was when God found it. Nothing. Genesis uses the descriptions of formless void, emptiness, darkness covering the surface of the deep, waters everywhere. The waters are all those things and forces that are incompatible with life that, if left to themselves, remain lifeless. The account of the Great Flood in Genesis chapter 6 through 8 captures that image catastrophically. In creation, God created a habitable bubble, right? It had land, it had air, it's the heavens and the earth in the midst of the waters. And what happens in the flood? The floodgates of the heavens are open, the floodgates of the deep are open, and what happens to the Shemaim? It shrinks, right? The land disappears, and it shrinks so that only an ark lives in the bubble that's habitable. The waters have come back. The chaos has taken over. Why? Sin. There's so much to explore there. Spent a whole chapter on it. I'm, I'm going to resist the temptation. I want to stay on track. As we approach the book of Amos today, a specific observation, though, seems essential for us to grasp if we are going to understand any of these prophecies in the Old Testament and how Jesus fits into them. For the prophets of ancient Israel, from whom we've received the Old Testament, hear this, church. Let it settle on you. Life is unnatural. Life is unnatural. The natural state of the universe is waters, lifelessness, void, darkness, lifeless. I love the Hebrew words. Order and life have been imposed on the universe by the word of God. Life has been imposed on the universe by the word of God. 
One of my favorite sayings by a man, uh, Reggie, oh, what's his last name? I can't remember, so I can't give him proper credit. McNeil, Reggie McNeil. He said, none of you chose to be born, you just woke up screaming. (laughs) It was imposed on you. You didn't choose to live. It was forced on you. And that's the same thing that God did to the universe. When he created, he imposed life on a lifeless universe. And even more, for order and life to be maintained, God has to maintain it. The scriptures don't teach it's a one-time creative event, but that God is still creating the heavens and the earth. One of my favorite psalms, Psalm 121, often says that he is the maker of heaven and earth in English. But the Hebrew phrase there in that psalm is that he is the one who is making. It's a present participle in Hebrew. The one who is making the heavens and the earth. He didn't just make it. He is still making it. He still maintains it. Even more, if God were to stop doing that, if he were to retreat and refuse to maintain what he created, everything would go back to what it was before he created it. Nothing. So for humanity, he took dust and breathed life into it. It's the same as speaking into the waters, right? And the human being became a living being. If he removes his breath, what happens? Dust. We go back to what we were. That's what they mean by the waters. Now you and I, you you might say, but why would waters represent destruction? There's more life in the oceans than there are on the earth. Sure, the scriptures say that. Let the waters teem with living creatures. But those are the seas on the earth. Those are in the Shemaim. These are the waters outside of it. We have names for these too. We call them acts of devastation in nature. Tornadoes, hurricanes, volcanoes, asteroids. This is the waters. We're scientists, so we have words for everything. They just said waters. This is the way in which the prophets have taught us to envision the world. Do you think of the world in these ways? We live in a habitable space carved out of an inhabitable universe by the word of God. And God reminded Israel on more than one occasion of this reality. As we've discussed, the flood recalls that imagery. But more subtly, when Israel walked on dry ground between the parted waters of the Red Sea and the book of Exodus when they were leaving Egypt, where were they? They were between the waters. God was holding the waters on their right. He was holding the waters on their left. What does the text say? By the blast of his nostrils, right? He sent a wind. He breathed on it and it separated and they walked on dry. That's the state of the whole universe. And they also experienced it when they walked through the same miracle. They walked on the dry land through the Jordan River as they entered the promised land. In both of those events, they were reminded that it was only the word and faithfulness of God who kept them safe between the waters. We recall this imagery too when we're baptized as Christians. You know, that's what baptism really is about. It's about death and resurrection. It's about entering the waters and being taken out of them. Life is unnatural. If you can't grasp that, you can't be a Christian. Life is unnatural. That's what we mean when we say, in the beginning, God created. Another word for create is imposed. Did the tree want you to cut it down and cut it into planks and build it into your house? No, you imposed that on the tree. You created. 
God imposed something on nothing. And the importance of this way of envisioning the world and our place in it is fundamental to what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Many follow Jesus and they don't follow Jesus. Now with that before us, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Amos. We're in Amos chapter 8 today and I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. And I hope that diatribe on the waters proves useful to you because it's the only way I've come to understand these prophecies. Amos chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. I'm going to just read the first few verses here. This is what the Lord God showed me. And behold, there was a basket of summer fruit. And he said, what do you see, Amos? And I said, a basket of summer fruit. Then the Lord said to me, the end has come for my people Israel. I'll not spare them any longer. I wish you knew Hebrew, you'd see what God is doing. The word for summer fruit and the word for end are pronounced exactly the same. So it's a play on words. He shows them summer fruit. What do you see? I see summer fruit. I wish I had the word memorized. I think it's like keits or something like that. And then he says, well, I see summer fruit. And God says, I see an end. Same word. It sounds the same. They're homonyms in Hebrew. So that's what's going on there. The songs of the palace will turn to wailing on that day, declares the Lord God. The corpses will be many. In every place they will throw them out. Hush. Hear this, you who trample the needy, to put an end to the humble of the land, saying, When will the new moon be over, so that we may sell grain, and the Sabbath, so that we may open the wheat market, to make the ephah smaller and the shekel bigger, and to cheat with dishonest scales, so as to buy the helpless for money and the needy for a pair of sandals, and that we may sell the refuse of the wheat? The Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob, indeed, I will never forget any of their deeds. Because of this, will the land not quake and everyone who lives in it mourn. Indeed, all of it will rise up like the Nile and it will be tossed about and subside like the Nile of Egypt. And it will come about on that day, declares the Lord, that I will make the sun go down at noon and make the earth dark in broad daylight. Then I will turn your festivals into mourning and all your songs into songs of mourning. And I will put sackcloth around everyone's waist and baldness on every head. And I will make it like a time of mourning for an only son. And the end of it will be like a bitter day. It's a hard word. And I even skipped a little of it, as you noticed. Throughout this series, the sins of the people of Israel in Amos' day have been well documented. We've talked about them extensively in previous sermons. Here again, God's accusation is that Israel, at least some people within Israel, have been profiting at the expense of others. And all the while, they were still following the worship customs of Israel as though the one had nothing to do with the other. And in each oracle from God spoken by Amos, God predicts punishments that he'll send. And up till now, oftentimes those punishments are in the form of invading enemies. He's going to give them to their enemies. And when Amos has prophesied those kinds of calamities, as he did in last week's discussion, for instance, I've said that these are more like consequences than they are like punishments. And what I meant to say is that the safety that Israel was enjoying was due to the activity of God in protecting them. Now, they didn't know that. They thought it was their own strength doing it. Horses and chariots and arms and all the things that they did. We might say science and technology and military units. We think it's us doing it. But they were safe because of God, not because of anything they were doing. And if God were to remove his hands of protection and they were left on their own with their own devices to protect themselves, God said, you're lost if that happens. Everybody around you more powerful than you. 
But the judgment God had declared for Israel was far more significant than simply being left to the mercy of the surrounding nations. As we can see in the verses we just read from chapter 8, God has been doing far more than simply providing geopolitical stability for Israel. He's been doing more than that. The regularity of nature itself has been God's work. And the Israelites should have known that. Because like us, they also had access to the prophetic account of creation that we just read together in Genesis. Our habitable bubble is surrounded by waters. By void, by darkness, by lifelessness, by chaos. If those waters were to breach the dome that holds them back, then they would reclaim what God had taken from them by creating. The dome that holds them back, we're told in Genesis, is the word of God. And it was God who allowed them to reclaim much of what he took from them in the great flood. That was God who let the waters come back. Now don't misunderstand me. The waters are not beings against whom God is warring. Spiritual beings in the scriptures, whether they're good or bad, are part of creation itself. The waters are simply the nothingness which was before God created the heavens and the earth. What happens when the waters return? Well, the orderliness and the stability of the heavens and the earth decrease. They become more erratic. That's what happens. And the earth begins to erode. And that's what God is warning here in Amos chapter 8. In verse 8, did you notice? God said the land would quake. And in verse 9, he said the sun would go down at noon. Those signs represent the undoing of creation. He said the ground would rise and fall like the Nile River. The land would become waters. Ma'im. Chaos. That would undo day three of creation. The sun would go down at noon, undoing the first day of creation and the fourth. God was warning Israel that the waters would be permitted to reclaim the habitable space, that the heavens and the earth would have to be returned to the waters. And what does that mean? Well, it means that God was threatening to answer Israel's prayer. They wanted him to leave them alone. When we go our own way, when we make our own decisions and decide what is right and wrong for ourselves, we at the same time are asking God to depart, to leave us alone. Let me be. I can make my own way. Stop imposing yourself on me. We either declare God as dead when we do that, as many have, they just decide he doesn't exist, or we wish for him to be so. And God was revealing to Israel that they didn't realize what they were asking for. They believed God and his law were impositions, that God was limiting their freedom and their autonomy, when in fact God and his law were their protection, their life. There's no life without God in what he has spoken. We may want life on our own terms, but you and I are not God. The reality of the universe is that there is no such possible life. Why? Because who created? God created. Did Josh create? Did Job create? God created. 
And if the essentialness of God and his word were lost on the Israelites, if they didn't get what he was saying, well, the rest of Amos' oracle might have driven it home. Look, continue with me now in verse 11 of Amos chapter 8. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord. So he's just said the earth would become like water, right? And the light, night and day would lose their distinctiveness, right? And darkness would cover where light once was. That's the chaos. That's the waters. And if they didn't get it, he explains, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread or a thirst for water, but rather a famine for hearing the words of the Lord. What happens when we stop hearing the words of the Lord? The earth becomes like water. And the darkness becomes light and the light becomes darkness, metaphorically and literally. People will stagger from sea to sea, from waters to waters, it says in the Hebrew, and from the north even to the east, and they will roam about. So they're walking through the Shemaim, trying to find the word of God. But they will not find it. On that day, the beautiful virgins and the young men will faint from thirst. Not thirst for water, thirst for God. And as for those who swear by the guilt of Samaria and say, as your God lives, Dan, and these people swearing by false gods, as the way of Beersheba lives, they will fall and not rise again. Humanity wants what it wants. And most of us look to our natural needs, our natural desires, our natural wants to indicate to us what is good for us. the, The thing I hear all the time today is be true to yourself. But in living this way, the worldly person fails to recognize that all that is natural is death. The natural state of the universe is lifelessness. That's how it was before God imposed himself on it. Life has been imposed on the universe by the word of God. Therefore, what is natural leads eventually, however long it takes, to death, and nobody needs to tell you that. You are living it. Only the word of God leads to life everlasting. It's for this reason that Jesus revealed the following to us. This is from the Gospel of Luke chapter nine. And he was saying to them all, if anyone wants to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, And follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, this is the one who will save it. For what good does it do to a person if he gains the whole world but loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and the holy angels. We must deny ourselves. Deny ourselves. That's quite unnatural, isn't it? We must impose something on ourselves that's against our nature. We must deny ourselves. So then why do so many today believe that embracing who we are is the way of Jesus? We're taught to accept who we are, not to deny ourselves. That's considered psychologically damaging. Why is this? Because we have come to believe, especially in the nations of the West, that what is natural is an indication as to what is good. 
This is not the way of Jesus. Quite to the contrary, the Apostle Paul has taught us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 21 to 22. For since by a man, this is Adam, death came, by a man, Jesus, also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Of course, as Paul has said, by the grace of God through faith in Christ, what I'm about to say can be undone. But even so, these verses tell us that we were born dead. Born dead. Maybe we would receive it better if we understood that we were born dying. In Romans chapter 5 through 7, Paul has spoken to, of us as slaves to sin from birth. David even said that, right? Surely I was crooked from my mother's womb, he says. And Jesus, in John chapter 8, informed his audience that they were all naturally children of Satan, which must not have been easy to hear. You know, Jesus, meek and mild. The church has long taught that we become children of God, not by birth, but by, what's the theological term? Adoption. We become children of God by adoption, not by birth. As Paul has said in Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 5, But when the fullness of the time came, God sent his son, born of a woman, Mary, born under the law, the covenant of Sinai, so that he might redeem those who were under the covenant of Sinai, that we might receive the adoption as sons and daughters. What is natural is death. What is spoken by God is life. If one is to follow Jesus, one must deny herself or himself, take up their cross, and follow him. Now, there are some who justify following their natural desires by saying things like, God doesn't make mistakes. Or, this is how God made me. I've heard abusive husbands use this language. I have a hot temper. As pleasant as that may sound to the ear, and it's pleasant because it requires nothing of us, it's a rejection of the scriptures entirely. If you've ever used that, you've denied Jesus. God may not make mistakes, that's true. But our being born dead and slaves to sin and in Satan's household, that was not God's work. That was our work. Our ancestors chose that. We are born broken as a consequence of human rebellion. Not always our rebellion, but always human rebellion. And broken we are when we are born. We are born dying. Maybe you have to get into your 80s before you realize that that's true. Because the beginning of your life feels like you're living. Until you realize that every step is closer to dying. This is why we're called to deny ourselves. You don't need to deny what's good. If we were born as we should be, then Jesus' call to deny ourselves would be nonsense. Maybe it is nonsense to many today. But to those of us who've set our eyes on Jesus, we don't look to our natures or our consciences as our guide. I don't hear Jiminy Cricket singing to me. Let your conscience be your guide. It's a great song. We look to the words God has spoken for our lives. 
All else paves the way to death. The road to life is narrow because only God created. One created. The road to death is wide because death is natural. And it requires no action to see it brought into being. Death comes by doing what is natural to do. It's easy. Death is easy. It can be delayed, but it cannot be stopped. It just comes. And if you did nothing except sit in a chair, death would come. It's natural. That's why the road to death is wide, and many find it. You're born on it. You don't even need to look for it. It's right there in front of you. But the way to life is narrow. It's between the waters, and only one in history has ever found it. Jesus Christ the righteous. Because he's God. When God informed Israel through Amos that he would bring a famine for hearing the words of God upon them, he was giving them what their behavior indicated they wanted. A world without him. A world in which humans decide what is right and wrong for ourselves. God can be an advisor, but he is no longer to be a dictator. That's what they wanted. It's what we want to. The rest of what God described to them, they're punishments, but they're just the waters. The natural state of the world without him. If you don't want God, then, you know, welcome to the waters. Let all those who claim to follow Jesus submit to the words God has spoken. Deny themselves. I had an old lady in the first Methodist church that I ever pastored. She called herself an old lady, so I'm not insulting her. And she would say, you know, I think sometimes people have to learn to get over themselves. I mean, she was saying it to me, so I knew what she meant. But still, it was a good proverb. It applied to me at the time. Let all those who claim to follow Jesus submit to the words God has spoken. Deny themselves and follow Jesus out of the waters and into eternal life. That is the gospel. And it's good news because somebody knows the way. But it's bad news, because only one person does. And two things happen in the world of the blind. The one-eyed man either becomes king, or everybody stabs out his eye to make him like the rest of them. And it's the second that happened to Jesus. The one who could see was put to death. Don't put him to death again. Don't look to your natures. Look to the word of God. May all who claim to follow him do likewise.